Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Again, thank you for being here, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ our Savior, for we pray in his name. Amen. Alistair McIntyre is a well-known, well-respected Catholic philosopher, and he wrote an important book a number of years ago entitled After Virtue, and in it he offers this thought experiment about how we as human beings make sense of the inexplicable. And what he says is, imagine yourself at a bus station. It's late at night. You're all alone, and this shadowy young man that you've never seen walks up to you, and he says, the Latin name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus, and then he walks away. Now, how do you make sense of that? McIntyre offers three options for how we make sense of this experience. He says that in order to understand it, we have to put experiences like that inside a larger narrative, and here are three possible larger narratives. Number one, The man was simply mentally ill. That's the larger story. You don't know him. He doesn't know you. He suffers from mental illness. And he randomly walked up to you and and told you the Latin name of the common wild duck. End of story. And you go on. You're a little freaked out, but you get on your bus. End of story. But then you begin to think, well, he didn't look mentally ill. He didn't really act mentally ill. And so maybe number two is just a a mistaken identity. And that was the reason that he came up and spoke to you. Maybe he was at a library looking up the name of the common wild duck in Latin. He didn't know it. He talked to the librarian. The librarian didn't know it. You looked like the librarian. He found it later and he just walked up to you and told you because he thought that's who you were. Less possible, but still a possibility. Or third, he's a secret agent and he just gave you a secret code and now you are responsible for defending our nation's security. You're basically now Tom in Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, and that's the situation. Now, he says that to make the point that, number one, if we're going to understand things like this, we've got to put them in a larger narrative, but also the larger narrative we put experiences like this within determine how we deal with it. You're going to deal with it very differently if the guy is mentally ill or if he's just aloof or if he's a secret agent. Again, the larger narrative that you place things like this within determines everything about how you deal with it. And our country seems beset right now with a constant experience of the inexplicable. Three weeks ago, a young man, a white man, after spewing all sorts of vitriolic nonsense about white supremacy, walked into a Buffalo supermarket and shot and killed 10 African-Americans, mostly elderly people, particularly preying upon the weak. And then much closer to home, as we all know, less than two weeks ago, another young man, again, preying upon the weak, walked into a school and shot two teachers, murdering them, and then 19 fourth graders. 
just 160 miles from here, about two and a half hour drive. Now, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the inexplicable? What larger story do you use? Do you place all of that within in order to make sense of it? Because you have a larger story that you're using. There is some larger story and various narratives abound from all sides and from countless point of views and countless sources in order to understand this. You have a story. You have a story that you're trying to use to make sense of your life. Not just these broad macro things that are happening in our world, but in your life specifically. Does that story hold up? Does it hold up under scrutiny, under pressure, under suffering? And what do we need? What do we especially need right now to understand the inexplicable? Acts 2 tells us, it does so with three points here this morning. The experience, number one. The background, number two. And then finally, number three, the error. First of all, the experience. As we've said, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a day that's described in what was just read to you from Acts chapter two, which is a tumultuous passage, perfectly suited in many ways for our tumultuous times. And notice the language. It begins with the word suddenly in verse two. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a sound and an image hit. There's something to hear, but there's also something to see and something to feel. And it, Luke says it, it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the word mighty is probably too weak of a translation. Every other time that Luke uses this word, it's to describe a violent mob. So maybe violent, a violent rushing wind. And then in verse three, there's something to see, something to feel, something burning there. And Luke gropes for words. He says tongues as of fire, something he's never seen. It's a, it's a fire that looks like little flames leaping out of a larger flames. And he calls them tongues probably because of what they eventually do to the disciples. They make them speak. And then the people that hear them speak, they're bewildered, verse six says. And then, or they're amazed or astonished, verse seven. And that's the language here. It's the language of the inexplicable, something unexpected, something shocking, frightening even, something life-changing. And this happens in our world. We just talked about it. It happens. It happens on broad scales. It happens specifically even to us. I have a dear friend. I've mentioned to her to you multiple times. We're praying for her. Her name's Kristen. She married one of my best friends from college. She's 46 years old, just like me. She's gone through six months of chemotherapy to, to completely kill basically everything in her body to deal with cancer. And now she's going to spend three months in Houston, moving there from Oklahoma, away from her family, away from her friends for three months for a bone marrow transplant. It's, it's unexpected, sudden, frightening and life-changing. It happens. It happens to us. It happens to people we know and love. But what if, as we read here in Acts chapter 2, God also does the inexplicable? What if he at times shows up in and through the tumult and the chaos of our lives, and he proves to be the far greater force, the far greater wind, the far greater fire, the, the far greater presence, and he, he presses his reality, his presence in and upon our hearts in a way that he becomes inescapable? What if something like that still happens? You know the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, prophet Elijah? He stood up to wicked King Ahab and then also to the more vile queen Jezebel. Anyone named Jezebel here? Nope. <laughs> Never baptized anyone named Jezebel because of this woman. She's why. And after being faithful to God and barely escaping these two in 1 Kings 19, Elijah's all alone. And he's in the mountains and he's angry and he's bitter. 
He's angry at God. He's bitter about his life because he's been faithful and life did not turn out as he anticipated or expected it to go. And he rails at God. And then God says, go out and stand on the mount before me. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, same elements as in Acts 2, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, the sound of a low whisper, sound of a low whisper. Other translations, the, fat, the sound of a thin silence. Have you ever had anything happen to you like that, but with God, where he, he shows up, especially not only in the tumult of your life, but after the tumult of your life, and you just know, you, you know that he's real and that he's present and that he's engaged and that you no longer, if you ever were, you no longer are alone and you know it. Something like that has happened to you. I'm willing to bet it came on the heels of some major disruption or disappointment or loss or failure of your own betrayal or something. And it's in the midst of that great moment that you realize that there is something, someone even greater. That's the experience of Pentecost. Here's the background. Point two, why did something like this which we all know here about. Why did something like this happen on Pentecost? We need a little bit more biblical background about this day and this word, in part because some of you have negative associations with the word Pentecost, or maybe especially the word Pentecostal. Many years ago, we were ordaining deacons at All Saints, and a new friend of mine who had not been in church in a long, long time was there. It was his first time to come to church. He had not been at, in church for a long time, maybe since high school, middle school, in part, in large part, because of some negative experiences he had in the church with a type of church that's far more expressive than we are typically in our worship. And in the midst of this ordination, one of the deacons who was bending down had a leg cramp, a bad leg cramp. And he shouted out, some of you remember this, he shouted out in pain. And we didn't know if he was having a heart attack or we didn't know if all of a sudden we had stopped being Presbyterian in that moment. We had no idea. And my friend, of course, assumed the latter. And he came up to me afterward and said, I thought you told me your church wasn't like that. And I said, it was just a leg cramp. But I also said, every church has to be at least a little bit Pentecostal in order to truly be a church. Because the word Pentecost, it just simply means 50. It's the Greek word for 50, which became a name for a Jewish festival, this agricultural festival that went on for 50 days after Passover. Because on the beginning of the first day after Passover, farmers from all across Israel, they would bring a sheaf or, or a, a bundle of their crops to the temple in Jerusalem, and they would present it to God as a way of thanking him and worshiping him for the harvest having begun, and also as a way to pray that the harvest would continue and they would have food to eat in Israel that year. And so for 50 days, they would do this, and there was a giant party at the end, but Pentecost became and was always more about what God was simply doing in their present. It was also about what God had done in their past, because in their past, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. And that's especially what Passover recalled. Passover still to this day recalls the, the 10 plagues there in Egypt. And, and many of you are probably more familiar with this. Children, Prince of Egypt, made by Disney. It talks about that. Some of us who are older, Charlton Heston and the 10 Commandments, that's what it's talking about. The last plague 
was the plague of the death angel in which the death angel passed over all of Egypt. But he, he truly passed over the homes of the Hebrews because they had sacrificed a lamb and they had smeared the lamb's blood over their doorpost. And he passed over them, not taking the life of their firstborn son. But he did not pass over the homes of all the Egyptians because they hadn't made the sacrifice. They hadn't smeared the blood. And the firstborn sons were taken, even Pharaoh's son, which is why he finally let Israel go. And here's the connection to Pentecost. It was 50 days after that first Passover that Moses ascended Mount Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments. Teaching Israel, in order to teach Israel, now that they were no longer slaves, now that they were free, they'd been given a new way to live as spoken of here in the Ten Commandments. So the first day of Pentecost was then making all days of Pentecost about a new way to live, a new way for God's people to be human. Because now, because of what he has done, they're free. And so are you free this morning? Or is there something ruling you, controlling you, dominating, determining your life? In other words, is there something that you're enslaved to? It could be anything. It could be insecurity. It could be anger. It could be something like alcohol. It could be a dating relationship. It could be an ex-spouse and his or her actions, antics towards you. It could be your image, your work, your fear, your worry, whatever. It could be any of these things. And on Pentecost, as, as every Sunday, you need to know, we need to hear that the hope and the promise of this day and of the Christian faith as a whole, but made very acute on this day, is that there is forgiveness available for you. Regardless of who you are, what's happened in your life, there's forgiveness available to you and freedom, true, real freedom, and also a new way to live, a new way for you to be human, it's available to you. And so how do you need that right now? How do you yourself specifically need that? That's the background. Finally, third point here, the error. Ancient Israel made an error with the law, with God's very word. And so often the very same error that we still make today. And this is the error, very simply, that the law in and of itself, by itself, cannot change hearts. It cannot change hearts. No law can. Not even God's law, not even biblical law. The Old Testament Mosaic law, it can provide truth. It can provide guidance and direction for how we can live, but it does not give us the power, nor the ability, nor even the desire to do it. It's just something the law can't do. Two things that the law can't do. It cannot provide forgiveness of sins. Keeping the law cannot atone for, make up for all of the bad, all of the wrong that's done, been done or happened in your life, and it cannot change your heart. Law cannot do that. And there are two laws, broadly speaking, right now that are making headlines. And people all across our country are crying out that they be changed. And what are those two laws? Cries about abortion and cries about guns. And many from the political right, including many Christians, are crying out for Roe v. Wade to be overturned and abortion to be significantly restricted, if not entirely ended. And then following the inexplicable travesties, not only in, in Uvalde, but now even this past week in Tulsa at a hospital, a hospital I know well, hospital that I went to after a high school football injury there at St. Francis, another mass shooting. Many from the political left, including many Christians, are crying out for gun laws to be changed and for greater restrictions on certain weapons and certain people, including teenagers. And there's something that I've noticed about the response from those who are opposing both cries, both people opposing Roe v. Wade being overturned and also those opposing stricter gun laws. 
And that is that the cry that they say, the response that they say to those cries are the same. And what do they say? What's the response? That changing the law won't solve the problem. Not ultimately. That abortions will still happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned and mass shootings will still happen if stricter gun laws are passed. The question is, are they right? Are they right? They're probably both right to some extent. Reduced, yes, but not ended entirely. And why? Why? Because law alone can't change hearts. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's very easy when I say things like that to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I don't hope that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. I do. Our church does. Our church is very committed and understands that biblically, theologically, morally, abortion is utterly indefensible. I'm also not saying that our country doesn't need stricter gun laws. We very well may. And I know, by the way, that that's a far more controversial statement than to talk about Roe v. Wade being overturned, at least in this context here this morning, far more. Because I'm a gun owner, like many of you. I'm an avid hunter, as well as all three of my boys. I actually learned to shoot a gun before I learned to ride a bike. And so for us, I know, and for me, gun laws raise the question of freedom and of rights. And Pentecost is about freedom. But let's just remember what freedom in the scriptures is. Freedom in the scriptures for the Christian is not absolute freedom. It's not absolute freedom to do whatever it is that we would and would want for our own benefit and happiness. And it's also, and this is even harder for us to understand, I think, freedom in the scriptures is not freedom to defend our rights against those that might take it. Freedom in the scriptures is what? It's freedom to love. It is freedom to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if our neighbor is our enemy. The Apostle Paul, read 1 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians. Freedom for the Apostle Paul is the freedom to not exercise rights if it will benefit, help, and protect others. And so don't hear what I'm not saying. Again, so easy, so easy. I'm not saying that laws aren't important. Of course they're important. Good laws help create a context, a cultural context in which hearts are protected from evil and greater exposure to sin and to darkness. They can contribute, in other words, to an environment in which hearts are more likely changed, but they can't change hearts. Laws can't do that. That's the error. It's the error that ancient Jews make. It's the error that we make today still, even us as Christians leads us to our inordinate reliance upon so many things, so many other things, politics included. Because we, even though we don't say this, I think we implicitly believe this, which is if we just get these laws on the books, then things will be different because people will be different because hearts will be changed. No, it's just not what law can do. We need to listen to the Apostle Paul, which is why I've printed so much for you from Romans 7 and Romans 8. Romans 7 is... Paul describing what life was like for him as an ancient Jew before coming to faith in Christ. Now, I know some of you are familiar with Romans 7. Many of you have read it. You probably always read it as Paul talking about the struggle of a Christian with ongoing indwelling sin. And I think that's a possible reading. I just don't think it's the best reading of Romans 7. What I think is happening in Romans 7 is that Paul is thinking back and remembering back to what his life was like before coming to know Jesus, before the road to Damascus which was his personal Pentecost. And before that, Paul was a Jewish rabbi from the most strict 
sect in Judaism from, from being, he was a Pharisee and they rigorously studied the law. They memorized almost all of the Old Testament law. How many of you all have memorized the Old Testament? Exactly, none. Paul had, almost. So he studied it and he arduously attempted to do every single thing that it said. Paul especially. He tried to do everything that he could do to follow God's law. And then what did he find out at the end of it all? What did he find out? He found out what verse seven or chapter seven, verse 18 says. And what does it say? It says, I could know what was right, but I did not have the ability to carry it out. He could know the law could show him what was right, but it couldn't give him the power to carry it out. That's what it's like for someone to have law, but not God. For even to have God's law, but not God. To have rules, but to not have a relationship. It's, it's, like, it's what life is like without Pentecost. It's what life is like without Jesus. Because when was Jesus crucified? When did he die? Do you know? Passover. 50 days before Pentecost, he was slaughtered like a lamb on a cross. His blood was smeared, but not on doorposts, but on a cross because he's the ultimate and final lamb who died for the forgiveness of our sins that God too might pass over our sin because he fully punished it all in Jesus. He spiritually passes over us with eternal death and he's also given us a new way to live, but even more so because Moses ascended a mountain to get God's law. Jesus ascended into heaven in order to give us what? Not a new law, not a new law. We have the same basic ethic as in the Old Testament. He ascended into heaven in order to give us the spirit that we might not just know God's word with our minds, but that we might actually live it out in, our, in all of our hearts, in all of our lives. In other words, we now have the power to live out what God's word said. That's what Romans 8's about. We don't just have rules, commands, laws written in stone or scripture. We have God, the spirit living within us to set us free, truly free. Do you see verse two? To set us free in order that we might fulfill God's word. Walk, verse four, live, verse five, be led by the spirit. So listen to me here. Here's where I close. Listen, if you are a Christian in baptism through faith, if you belong to Jesus, Romans 7, 18 is not true of you. It's not ultimately true of you. You do have the capacity, not perfectly, not fully and completely, but you can do what God's word says. You can. God has given you his spirit. There's a new mighty power dwelling inside of you. The very same wind, the very same fire that we read about in Acts chapter two dwells within you, dwells within God's people. And so this is what we really need right now. This is what we ultimately need. We need God, the Holy Spirit, making Jesus present in us and through us to a very hurting and a very broken world. That is what we need. That is what they need. And so will you make this story, this, this Pentecost story, the greater story into which you place everything inexplicable in this world? And, and not the other stories. There's so many other stories. Not the stories of politics, the, the, the stories of the far left or the stories of the far right. Not the stories told by images on social media. Not the stories told by American careerism or successism or materialism. And not even the story that you whisper to yourself in your lowest and your darkest moments. And we do this. Where, where, we, where we whisper things to us about that failure or that loss or that hurt. Friends, these stories will demand that you and your own power live by a law. 
that you, that you live by a law in order to be loved and accepted. In Christ, you are already loved. You are already accepted. God has done everything necessary, everything possible for you to be loved and accepted, to forgive you, to free you, and to give you a new life. You have a new life. You have a new life. And so walk by the Spirit within you. Live by the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will, he will make your path straight. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, even as we pray each and every Sunday, but especially this Pentecost Sunday, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon your people, that we might know you, that we might love you, even as you have loved us and in through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.